Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. In His name that is powerful, the name that is so powerful that even those who are not in relationship with Him can cast out demons and do many mighty works. Powerful name. In that name, in that authority, in that... And that might, we come before you and we ask that Holy Spirit would be counselor, teacher, guide, reminder this morning. Be sovereign over your people. Speak to your people. Morning and evening we come to delight in the words of our God. And so Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would minister grace to your people. For the team and our people group and our teams, multiple, we pray your grace to them today. We pray, Father, that as they have spent time with you today, that you would strengthen their souls, supply everything that's needed. We pray, Father, that you would mobilize and move and send, Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers from this fellowship, not just there, but all across our county. Father, move powerfully this morning, we pray. And we ask that in all these things, your people would be encouraged and our joy in you would increase and you would receive great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying through 1 Timothy. We're going to study through 2 Timothy. And we're going to study through Titus. And uh, we're going to do it uh, however long it takes us to do it. Uh, last week, I was pretty ambitious thinking we would get through 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. And we got through point 1. And uh, today, we're going to try to finish up points 2, 3, and 4. This may go a little quicker. And we'll just see. Remember I told you the mission is not just to get done. The mission is to hear. And so we're going we're gonna to plow through the Word and let the Word teach us. And so um, if you didn't listen online to last week or you missed, missed last week, uh, I'm going to do a very quick recap and then we're going to launch into point two. And I put these notes on the blog. So if you're there, uh, you can, if you're technologically savvy, you can go. Uh, I think it's mitchdolly.wordpress.com. Uh, Most of you guys know that because you use it. I updated those, uh, and the title is Wage, Wage the War Two. Okay, so let's read First Timothy one eighteen to twenty. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Last week, we introed that and we talked about the fact that we must wage the good warfare. That was point number one. And we talked about how we wage the good warfare and that was exactly what Paul told young Timothy at at this church called Ephesus where he's the pastor, where he's one of the pastors. He is part of a body of elders. And his primary job is teaching. And so Paul is instructing him and he's instructing the church. And he tells them that you hold faith in good conscience. And that's how you wage this good warfare. And so we talked about holding faith. That you can't hold the faith if you haven't believed the gospel. We talked about the fact that you can't hold the faith if you don't obey. We talked about holding a good conscience. And we define what conscience is and... And we said that conscience, and this is my definition, I'm sure you can find different ones, but this is my definition. It's the cumulative effect of the entire biblical narrative. Remember I told you I chose those words on purpose specifically. The conscience is the cumulative effect of the entire biblical narrative. Not not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and the lesson to the Romans, you know, not all that's all of it. Genesis throughout the entire biblical narrative on one's application of that narrative's truth in their specific situation. We talked about the fact that conscience is not opinion formed in the convictions. If you have convictions that are based upon opinion, you need to keep them to yourself. Non-Christians have a conscience, we discovered. Right? That's because they're an image bearer. Image bearers did not, because of the fall, have the image removed. It's just broken. And so non-Christians have consciences. And we're talking about a transformed image bearer who now has the Spirit of God residing in them, a new heart transplanted by the work of the gospel. And so the entire 
narrative of the scriptures informing the conscience. And we talked about what happens when our consciences don't agree. And we said we would use Romans 14 as our model. Because there are things that we have and in our church covenant that are essentials, right? If you've been through our, our membership class, we talk about these things that we have a closed fist on. And if you decide Jesus isn't God, then that's a problem, right? And there's closed-fisted issues. Um, then there are open-fisted issues. And, and Romans 14 is the model. Paul doesn't tell the eaters to stop eating and the non-eaters to start eating. He doesn't tell the day observers to stop and the non-day observers to start. He doesn't tell the drinkers to stop and the non-drinkers to start. He tells them to operate in faith and be in unity. And that's how we do it. That's how we're going to do it. Okay? Because that's what the manual says. So we talked about you can't hold a good conscience in ignorance. You can't hold a good conscience while complaining. I hate complaining. Just, just well, that's not. But complaining is worthless. And if you're a guy, oh my Lord, stop. Okay? And there are other things I want to say. I want to go Galatians 5.12. Go look that up and you'll... <laughs> You'll understand why I'm not going to say that right now. Stop. You can't hold a good conscience while whispering about others. Right? You can't hold a good conscience in assumption. And so we've got to wage the good warfare. Well, that leads us to where we stopped last week, and that's point number two. What we learn in verse 19, the second part of the verse, through verse 20. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Point number two, by not waging war, that is holding faith and a good conscience, we shipwreck our faith. By not waging this war, we shipwreck our faith. In the life of the church, it's vital to be present in each other's life. We stated that clearly. We're beating that drum. Don't assume you have anything better to do than be preached to and meet with the people of God in multiple settings. We need one another. We need the Word. There's grace in the preaching of the Word. There's grace in our time together. However, don't assume that if you're present that you're fighting the good war. Paul didn't say anything about presence being how we fight the good war. Hymenaeus and Alexander were present, obviously, because they're affecting the doctrinal belief structure of the body. They're present, but they're still shipwrecking their faith. Right? I mean, they're there, and they're shipwrecking their faith. We must be aware that holding faith in a good conscience may be, probably... Fought most often in the quiet moments alone while wrestling with our thoughts. Or our conversations in private that are out of bounds. Paul told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we must be aware of Satan's schemes. Anything contrary to doctrinal accuracy in the essentials... And peace and unity and love in the non-essentials. Romans 14, unity and love in the non-essentials. They're Satan's schemes. They just are. We have said multiple times, and we say this a lot, and I, I try to communicate that from up here on Sunday morning. We have a mission that's informed by Scripture. I'm going to say to you, be fixed on that mission. Be fixated on that mission. The glory of God in building the church, local and global, by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. Don't fixate on peripheral, conscience, arguable points. Be aware of Satan's schemes. Your pastors, your elders, your overseers, those that the Father has given you and those He has multiplied and growing are committed to that mission. And we will only move 
on means that is the hows to accomplish that mission as the Spirit gives leadership and clarity and unity. There's no agenda other than God's glory in Jesus Christ and building the church local and global by producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. In stewarding that mission, Paul's given Timothy. He's given to us a job. And if you're looking at the notes, I'm going to read all the scripture references. You can go look at them on the blog because I've got to make sure we get finished. With, well, I, we're going to do our best to get finished. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. But in guarding his mission for the glory of Jesus Christ among all nations by abiding in the vine of Jesus Christ, radical followers arising from, connected to the root sword of Christ, producing the fruit that Jesus produces through his branches. In guarding that, we have to steward that mission. We're told in Acts chapter 20, I'm going to give you the scripture references anyway. Acts 20, 17 and 28 to 31 of the same chapter, he told us to guard the church. To guard. Meaning stand watch, be vigilant. Shoot the wolves. Don't assume there are no wolves because you don't see them. Acts 20, verse 31, to be spiritually alert, discerning the spirits. It's a spiritual gift. Discerning the Listen, we say this a lot here. What is going on with your eyes is not all that's going on. There is a spiritual conflict being waged against the church, against God's people. It takes place in the quiet recesses of your mind and those conversations that may be out of bounds. There's a war being waged And the schemer, the liar, is at work and we have to be spiritually alert. Be courageous. 1 Samuel 17, we've got to be willing to war. Got to feed. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, we've got to teach the text with passion and accuracy. It's why we preach from the Bible. This is why we're not necessarily concerned with giving you a topic we're going to study through. I don't really care. The text needs to dictate the topic. Okay? You know how you're going to learn to study your Bible? By observing people who are studying their Bible. And then going and practicing what you do. That's why I preach from the Bible. So hopefully you walk away with, hey, I can do that. Feed. Feeding. Leading. Leading the church. Making decisions on how to achieve the mission. First Peter 5. Managing. 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5, working out the house with efficiency as far as efficiency is necessary. Efficiency doesn't always mean correct. Just because it works doesn't make it right. We're not naturalists. We're not atheists. We're Christians. And sometimes God's processes aren't efficient. They're right. There are lots of things our culture values that work, but we don't participate in them because they're wrong. Euthanasia works. Abortion works. But they're wrong. Does that make sense? So our job is not to do what works. Our job is to do what's right. And we'll war on those things. Would work hard. You ought to follow us around for a week. You will be tired. We don't sit around chanting scripture in a comatose state. We put our hands to jobs. Care for practical needs through the accurate ministry of deacons that our denomination has wrongfully defined. Because they define deacon as elder. And the scriptures don't do that, so therefore they have Wrong people serving in elder positions, but they call them deacons. So we have a deacon ministry that is vital here. So we care through for practical needs through the ministry of, of these precious servants of the Lord. Love God's people. Remember we talked about that when we studied First John. Caring about the sheep's eternal good, not about their temporary comfort. The temporary comfort is somewhere fifth down the list. Your eternal good. 
is what matters. And, I'm, and, and here's where we're going. You ready? In stewarding our mission with these biblically mandated tasks I just listed for you, we seek to keep you and us holding the faith in a good conscience. Whether we have space for radical kids or whether or not we're able to facilitate the growth that the Lord is bringing us is peripheral. It is not central. I want you to hear that. Facilitating growth that the Lord is bringing is peripheral. It is not central. Now where does Paul tell Timothy to make sure you make space for growth? He tells them to hold the faith and a good conscience. So whether we have space for Jack is peripheral to finishing the race well and having kept the faith and a good conscience. Some may not make it. Thus the sober sounding nature of this text. The shift from the metaphor of fighting the good war to the metaphor of a shipwreck is sad and sobering. He goes, Paul moves from fight the good war to some have shipwrecked. It's sobering. The implication is that there is a war. The implication is there's something more vital than spatial issues. There's something more vital than where you're going to sit. And we don't buy into the schemes of the evil one and pay attention to those things when what's at stake is the faith and a good conscience. The implication is there is a war and there are some who lose badly. Paul didn't tell us the exact nature of what they did except that their sin involved blaspheming in some way. So go back to chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Their myths and endless genealogies led them to peripheral and irrelevant things. And Hymenaeus has said particularly doctrinally, that the resurrection had already passed in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18. So his eschatology is jacked, and he's leading people in the wrong direction. He's got the wrong chart. He's messing people up. Alexander's a popular name of the day, so we're not sure that this Alexander here is the same Alexander in 2 Timothy 4, 14. My hunch is that it is the same man. But regardless, whoever this Alexander character is, he's withstood Paul. By teaching false doctrine. So how do we, how do we, pastors, elders, overseers, you, people, us, people in the kingdom of God, us church members together, how do we hold the faith and a good conscience and avoid shipwreck? And that's, that's the question of point number two. I'm going to give you a few ways we can avoid shipwreck. Number one, we wage war, we wage war by submitting to the text even if it wounds our pride over wrong thinking. We submit to the text even if it wounds our pride over wrong thinking. Listen to Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Great question. Who's going to be with you? Who's going to be where you are? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. I just kind of feel compelled to back up one, one phrase there. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Be careful about how you approach and treat and speak to the people you're in fellowship with. You know, we all wrestle with the internal workings of our mind, right? That's where the war is often fought. And just because you've wrestled and the Lord and His grace has helped you overcome doesn't mean you need to go tell them about it. And then put their conscience in distress wondering what you did wrong. When you did nothing wrong, they were just engaged in war. And if you're reproaching a brother and sister, deal with it, you and the Lord, and then be quiet. And don't go put that on there. Does that make sense? 
That's just self-centered. Oh, I had a problem with you. I know you didn't know it, but I was slamming you around everybody and myself, and I'm done now. I'm over. Just wanted you to know. That's, that is self-centered. Take up no reproach against your friend. Those are the people who deal in his, who dwell in his tent and on his holy hill, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is, this is the passage, this is the part of the psalm that's sort of dialing in on this point. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his moneyed interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. We wage war by submitting to the text even if it wounds our pride over wrong thinking. We must let the text dictate our actions. I say this a lot. and You guys, I love to hear it when you talk about it. What is this? It's the... The manual. It's the manual. I personally am constantly checking myself to see if I'm reading the text with no bias and allowing the text to speak. It is so easy in a post-Christian South to take things we've heard all our lives and read them onto the text. And it's not what it says. We bend it to make it say what we want. I've been guilty of that. I'm guilty of that daily. And so I'm constantly having to go back to the text and make sure that I'm not holding on to something that might wound my pride because of the stuff that's come out. You have a, listen, it's a great privilege you possess that most people have never heard your inner workings come out of their, out of your mouth. You get to hear mine every week. And it is a sobering reality for me. And I'm, and I'm serious. Because what I'm discovering and what I constantly discover is I'm wrong sometimes. And I have to stand before Christ and give account for that. And so I don't come to the text and flippantly make stuff up for you because it's comfortable for me. Nor should you do it. We swear to our own herd and we don't change. We wage war by submitting to the text even if it wounds our pride over wrong thinking. With the essentials, we have no flexibility. They're in our covenant. Everything else, we seek to act and be gracious with one another in our gracious acting toward one another. Another way we wage this war for faith and a good conscience, number two, is we wage war by embracing suffering for doing what is right. We embrace suffering for doing what is right. 2 Timothy 3, 12-15, Indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have a great and easy time of it. That's a lie. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in his second correspondence. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Listen, Paul doesn't tell Timothy that those who are doing the bad work are going to get called out on it. The person who's doing what's right will be persecuted and often the person propagating the persecution goes scot-free. What does the Christian do? Well, he answers the question, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's that? Bible, scriptures, in this context, Genesis to Malachi, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We wage war by embracing suffering for doing what's right. Listen, if we obey the text, I guarantee you there will be Judases on the inside, fake branches who will squeal. The assumption here is for Paul to the church at Ephesus, to Timothy, is this comes from within. Remember we introduced this like 27 weeks ago? We looked at the book of Acts where Paul addresses these Ephesian elders, this whole group of them, and tells them that these wolves will come from within. And this is why we're preaching this text, and we'll get to what has to happen here in just a moment. But we wage this war by embracing the fact that there will be those who will bring suffering because you stand on the text. third way we fight this war is we wage war by submitting to 
and imitating tax-driven leadership. We wage war by submitting to and imitating tax-driven leadership. This is the Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That is a very intimidating passage when you're on the side of those who are your pastors. Because what we're saying, and this is why Paul's going to tell Timothy in chapter 3, he who desires this task of overseer desires a noble task. Why is it noble? Because you're in a position of saying, imitate how I live. That makes my gut curl. Because there are things I would love for you to imitate about the way I live. Some of our pastors, they will say the same thing to you. There are things I don't want you to imitate about me. Things you don't see. They see. Many of them see. But wage this war by submitting to and imitating that kind of leadership. If there's anything worthy of praise, Paul tells the Philippians, think on those things. If there's anything in the example set before you and the men who lead you, imitate it. Submit to it. Follow it. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For what advantage would that be to you? We wage war by following the example of those who are taking us into war. Fourth way. We wage war as radical followers of Jesus producing fruit. We wage war as radical followers of Jesus producing fruit. We say this in our mission statement. For the glory of God build the church local and global by being and producing radical followers of Jesus. What's a radical follower of Christ? It's a person who's communion with God. They're communion with each other. They're colliding with their culture. That collision with culture produces fruit. There are multiple ways. And listen, how do we combat? What's one of the ways we combat? So we wage this good war by holding the faith, keeping a clean conscience. We make sure we're engaging in the work. Not worrying about peripheral, secondary issues. There's far too much work to be done in our town and in our people group for us to be worrying about where I'm sitting. That makes sense? Here's the cure for whispering. Here's the cure for those things. You ready? Sign up and go with us over to our people group. I'll get you in. I will get you in. I'll take you. You ready? I told you, get your passports ready. You want to go? There's nothing like walking into that context that makes you go, I'm good. I'm good. Good. I want to follow Jesus, obey Him. Good. Do it. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Right? Produce fruit. We wage war by remaining in Christ. We wage war by spending time with Christ. We wage war by staying in the vine. And we learn in John 15 that when we remain in the vine, what does He do? He produces fruit. He never tells us to go produce fruit. He tells us to remain. And as we remain, what does He do? He produces fruit. That's a great promise. Abide in Christ and fruit will happen. So how do you wage war? Make sure you're in communion with God, community, and fruit will happen. There are far too many needs. We need far too many foster parents to alleviate the problem. I said this before, I'm going to say it again, it's a bold statement. We must not continue to trumpet the cause against abortion until we're ready to take the children they stop aborting. It's great to, in the comfort of your own home tweet and facebook about that issue but you must open the door and when the child comes to term welcome them into your home there are far too many things for us to be producing fruit on to be worrying about what Hymenaeus and Alexander were worrying about far too many issues I watched a kid walk into our school yesterday at Visitor's Day, and I sat in my office yesterday afternoon, and I, I, I don't do this often because I don't like to 
I don't know what to do with it. But when emotion happens to me, I need to go hide. Because I'm not comfortable with that. But, but this, this kid's only shot may be here. And I guarantee you, he can't afford to come here. That may be his only shot. And there are far too many opportunities for Christians to give for those types of things. And we don't. I'm not saying Christian education is for everybody. It may, may not be. But when we can't afford to put a kid somewhere that it may be his only opportunity to reach back into the ethnic culture from which he's coming with the gospel and it can't be done because the church isn't doing anything or giving anything, it's a failure on our part. We're too worried about where we're sitting or where our kids are going. There's too many needs. How do we wage war? Make sure we're producing gospel fruit. Does that make sense? It's not complicated. Got to engage in ministry. There are opportunities to engage in Youth for Christ, Pregnancy Center. There's a new opportunity in our, in our town. We know the foster care problem is huge in our town because I tell you a lot. In the position I sit on as a county representative for Floyd County and Department of Family and Children's Services. Rejuvenate Hope is something that started up where we need somebody in our fellowship who will lead the way. Because the, the state is paying for an organization to come and start recruiting Christians. They specifically requested Christians, the church, to be mentors for parents whose children have been taken away from them. That's called evangelism. It's a wide open opportunity. The state is funding for Christians to mentor a mom or dad or a mom and dad who's had their child removed from them. The state is asking for Christians. Are we going to respond or just be worried about Well, chairs, you know. You see what I'm saying? How do we wage this war? Get engaged. Set up, take down, discipling one another in connect groups. Engaging non-Christians where you are. They're all over us. They're in this school. I get to teach them every day. Engage them where you are with the gospel. Give. We need to make sure our guy in River City, and I can't say it's been recorded, is funded well. Not everybody's going to get on a plane and go, but you can drop the money in the box because that's where it goes. How do you wage this war of keeping the faith and a good conscience? Produce gospel fruit. We've got to make sure we keep that external focus intact. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? When we get too internal, what happens? We lose sight of mission. And Hamanaeuses and Alexanders shipwreck their faith. Third point. Those who shipwreck their faith are handed over to Satan. Among whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now if you take our membership class, we talk about in our covenant, and this is we're talking about this morning, Jonathan and Emmett were leading that group this morning, and in our covenant we talk about church discipline. And it's pretty important. Because it's spoken of here in verse 20. He says, Among whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not, then they learn not to blaspheme. Delivered to Satan implies an apostolic discipline. Check out 1 Corinthians 5. Okay? Just go read it on your own. I have time to do it right now. And the idea is disassociation from the local church. The verb to learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The verb to learn means to learn by discipline. When a Christian refuses to repent, the local fellowship should exercise discipline. Excluding them from the protective fellowship of the saints, making them vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. The fellowship of the local church, in obedience to the will of God, gives a believer spiritual protection. Satan has to ask for permission to attack a believer. Check out Job 1 and 2. Paul assumes that the church is exercising this type of discipline. Paul assumes we understand the necessity for corporate holiness. We must not assume it does not matter. That would be to believe deceitful spirits. Which we'll look at in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. I think sometimes our problem with this idea in the text of church discipline comes from the idea of we misunderstand the word discipline. Discipline does not mean punishment. 
Discipline innately means training. I discipline myself not to eat certain things because I don't want to look like Chris Farley. Right? I exercise self-control. Right? That's called discipline. That's training. Church discipline is not unloving. It is ultimately loving. As a matter of fact, when you read 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we hand them over to Satan so that they will learn not to blaspheme here. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, so that they may be saved. Meaning that by removing them from the protective fellowship of the body, they are then trained to repent and come to Christ and make sure they are not lost. That's not punishment. That's training. That's love. That's counter to what we think, isn't it? Maybe it's because as children we were more punished than we were trained. And we can't read that onto the text. Church discipline is loving. Discipline is loving training for holiness. What does Hebrews 12 tells us? What does it tell us? It tells us that God disciplines us, trains us, so that we can receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I've got an illustration for you. It's because this is fresh and I've been reading and loving this stuff. And Buds. Everybody know what Buds is? Basic underwater demolition school. SEAL training. If you want to get a vision of what this looks like, go to YouTube and type in seal or uh, um, Buds Class 234. There's a six-part series you can watch. And it's, it's kind of scrubbed a little bit. I don't show you everything. It's fascinating. And some of you ladies are like, oh, God, here we go again. You men are like, okay, okay, okay. Go watch it. It's beautiful. And you'll, you'll get the illustration. Buds instructors love seals so much that they make it exceptionally difficult to become a SEAL because they know that when they are in combat, the enemy won't care about them. So they make the training so hard that combat is achievable because the training was so hard. That's not hatred. That's love for the man who's going to war. That is concern for his well-being. That is training to help him come home alive. Basic for any military branch is like that. They don't hate you. They know the enemy hates you. And they want to love you enough to train you to come home. Church discipline is love because it's training for righteousness. It's training to follow Jesus. Paul loved Hymenaeus and Alexander so much that he handed them over outside the covenant protection of the fellowship that they may learn not to do that again. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, by the way, prescribed in in Deuteronomy. Jesus isn't making this stuff up. He's coming from the manual. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. That's perfect passive. Going to be nerdy on you for a second. And it's easily better translated, shall have been bound. It's a past tense. It's completed and the results carry on indefinitely in the future. I write that in the notes on the blog. You can go look it. Sorry. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed or shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's crazy about this passage. Jesus tells us how to do this. Right? By the way, church discipline is a constant reality. Every time my brothers come to me and say, hey, Jolly, I don't know if that's the best practice. That's step one Jesus just gave us. Hey, man, not a good idea. You probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, you know, what is our prideful response? Like, well, you shut up. Do whatever I want to do, right? But then we, we start, oh, okay, and the Spirit's really good. He starts convicting. Like, oh, gosh, you're right. That's church discipline. That's church discipline. It's training. 
you learn. Like, why do I beat my children? To teach them not to do that anymore. And it works. It's crazy. It's not hatred, it's love. Because they can't do that when they're 20. They're going to jail. Right? Church discipline is really constant. If you help a brother turn to what's right, you've exercised training, church discipline. You know what's cool about this passage? People use this passage and they pillage it all the time to say that when only two or three people get together, well, Jesus is obviously there because there are two or three there. That's not what this says. If you're alone because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus is there. You don't need two or three people for Jesus to show up. What Jesus is saying here is that when you do this process of training one another, I'm there working the process for you. Where two or three are gathered, when you obey my word to train one another in holiness, I promise I will be there to make sure what is bound is bound and what is loosed is loosed. That's my job. If you obey me, I'll make sure it gets done. That's Jesus' promise here. And when we don't exercise in training one another, if we don't exercise training one another, we're denying Jesus His sovereign right to come and sit as steward over His church and train His people. And you know what? Church discipline is happening all the time, I hope, in your life together under the Word and fellowship. We've only had to follow that through one time in our almost 12 years of history. We won't allow disunity, contrariness, backbiting, rumors, false accusations, adultery, other kinds of misconduct in that type of world. Gentlemen, make sure that you are not leavening the whole lump by what you're looking at on your computer. Your sin is never isolated to just you. It's a communal issue. We may not see repentance in the person, but we will see holiness in the body by rooting out willful sin. And that is grace. That's one of the ways we fight this good war of holding the faith and a good conscience. Because that's what's most vital. You feel that? Whether we have enough seats for everybody or places to put kids is peripheral. Us attaining spiritual maturity, holding faith and a good conscience is most vital. Most vital. Well, let me close it up and try to bring, bring, the, bring this back to a place where we can feel a little better. Okay, this is a heavy, it's heavy this morning, right? It's a little heavy. But it's what's here and we've got to deal with it. We don't, which that bothers me. Can I just rabbit trail for a second? That bothers me when, when people won't talk through hard texts. When they don't do that, we're missing the grace of the Lord. The Lord speaks through hard texts too, doesn't He? He does to me. I know it's easier to just not, Let's just skip on to chapter 2, verse 1 and talk about praying. It'd be awesome. Well, if we, if we do that, then we've missed the context over which we should be praying. Right? Number four. Fourth point to wrap this bad boy up. Conclusion. Faith, good conscience, and training for holiness are what good war fighters look like. So how do I know if I'm fighting this war well? How do I know if I'm a good war fighter? Holding the faith, keeping your conscience straight, and training for holiness. If you're holding on to the faith, keeping your conscience clean, and you're holding on to holiness and fighting for holiness, you're fighting the good war. You're fighting the good war. And you know what that does for us? That produces confidence. It produces confidence that in these things... We are children of God and we're not shipwrecking our faith. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And all those that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will hold them and I will lose none of them. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. When we walk by keeping the faith, keeping our conscience clean, walking in unity with each other, keeping the faith, working toward holiness, we have great confidence that we are God's children. And you know what part of my job is? Is to make sure I hold the text out to you so that you know to hold on to the faith properly with what you think and believe. 
And when we hold on to these things, we have great confidence that we're children of God and not shipwrecking our faith. Listen, the most dangerous thing you have in front of you today is not what someone may do to you, what may happen to you on the drive home. The most dangerous thing in front of you today is failing to hold on to Jesus Christ as your chief end and means in everything. There is no throwing Jesus under the bus as secondary and being Christian. You shipwreck the faith when you do that. The most dangerous thing facing us when we're in country is not the possibility of radical groups killing us. The most dangerous thing in front of us is walking away from Jesus. Those who keep their life lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake in the gospel find it. Your most dangerous thing today is not what could happen to you from the outside or the disease you could discover you have, but it is that you fight the war of keeping the faith, a clean conscience, and running toward Jesus Christ in holiness. That's the most vital thing for you to do today. We have great confidence when we do that. And in this confidence, as children of God, we look forward. This is great. This is Revelation 21. Remember like when we studied through Revelation a few years ago? When we have this kind of confidence, we understand that as God's children, we look forward to inheriting the earth. Right? You know what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes? What are those who are in the kingdom? What do we get out of this? Maybe nothing on this side of eternity. But what do we get? We get the earth. This is where the doctrine of heaven is glorious. It's not wings with a harp on a cloud. It's a new earth with no sin in it. And we inherit it. I get it. I get it's mine. Yours together in perfect community. No sin. That fires me up. Can you imagine working the earth with no sin to impede? Can you imagine fellowship with no sin to get in the way? Man, I hope we get to hunt in the kingdom. I will never miss. Never miss. I'll be able to bow hunt again and never miss. It's awesome. This is the confidence that we have when we stay with the faith and we pursue a clean conscience and we pursue holiness together. If we don't walk in the faith and we don't walk in keeping our conscience clean and we don't walk in peace and unity and deference to one another and, and walking toward holiness, we have no confidence that we belong to Jesus. But man, when we do those things, there's great confidence that we are His and we will inherit His new creation. What Adam and Eve messed up, we're going to get right because He's going to make it right. And finally... In this kind of confidence as children, we get the privilege of singing to and enjoying the God who sings over us. Why do we sing on Sunday morning? It's because it's a good idea? Nope. As Miss Ivory says around here when she teaches the arts as a worldview, we sing because God sings. We're image bearers. And Zephaniah 3.17, it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, says the Lord your God is in your midst. You believe that? believe this morning that the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, is present right now? That's what that says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Those who are fighting the war of the faith, keeping their conscience clean, pursuing holiness. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's singing over you. You're His. You belong to Him. And He delights in you. Me and us together. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Isn't it neat to see Jesus as glad? He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If you this morning are holding on to Jesus. Faith and a good conscience and pursuing holiness. You know what Jesus is doing right now? Singing loudly over you. Why do we sing? Because he sings. And so I say to some of us dudes who just, you know, I don't know, we don't sometimes sing, or maybe we're too cerebral, we're more, you know, some of us guys are very cerebral, and we're not, we're thinkers, we're not feelers. 
I want to say to you, our response to the Lord in worship is not contingent upon connecting with our mental capacities. It is a response of obedience to the Jesus who is singing over you at the moment. So whether you sing or not, that's an obedience issue between you and the Lord. If you choose not to for some stupid peripheral reason, you're in sin. He's singing over me, and I'm going to stand back there in the back and make a righteous racket. I know it ain't pretty. Like, I can't even keep time. They're trying to clap, and I was off the entire time. And I have to watch somebody that's clapping going, I have no skill. I have no skill. All right? But you know what? He's singing over me, and in response to that, I want to sing to him. And that's what the children of God are in the church. And that's what binds us together. Worship is one of the, worship and song is one of the external evidences that we are fighting the fight of the faith together. It is. It just is. It just is. So I want to invite you to engage in that. I'm going to pray for us. And these guys are going to come lead us. And let's, let's make much of the king who's made much of us. Father, we pray now that you would help us to pursue faith and a good conscience. Helps to walk in holiness. Not because we have to to earn your favor, as we were so graciously reminded this morning, but because we are yours. We obey not to get your favor. We obey because we have it, and that is life-changing for me. So, Lord, I pray that you would move on your body, your people, to pursue holiness. Not because we have to, but because you've given us a new heart that wants to. Lord, help us to fight for the faith. Help us to keep a clean conscience and to love each other as our consciences may not match sometimes. So that we can do the mission of the glory of Jesus Christ among all nations. Helps to do that. Holy Spirit, I ask you to rule this place right now. I ask you to make us, make us, and I mean that word, make us to respond in obedience. Because I need help. I'm stupid. And I need you to make me do things sometimes. And that's grace. So help me to respond like I need to this morning. Help us all to respond like we need to. Make us respond like we need to. Pray that you will guard us from the lies of the evil one that calls us to miss the way. Calls us to do things that we shouldn't do or think things we shouldn't think. Holy Spirit, I ask you to illuminate our minds to that and, and cause us to, to walk, to walk in the way that is right, to fight for faith, fight for the faith and clean conscience and pursue holiness. Do that, please. Pray that you will unify that you will build construct lead help us not shipwreck our faith as we come to bring to you a response of you singing over us would you empower that we pray that in all these things you'd be glorified and our joy would be in you